Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, which is a very interesting wording there, freed from sin, you like, enslaved to God, you kind of go, hmm? But I'm going to tell you, there is no neutral setting. As we talked about last time, there is no neutral setting. You either are a slave to sin, you either serve sin, or you serve God. There is no neutral setting. You know the parallel things you do? Yes. I really hate that. You know where the versus parallel one? Yes. It's the same thing, but it sounds so much nicer. It does sound nicer. You have been set free from sin. You have become slaves of righteousness. Servants of righteousness. Douloi, servants of righteousness. Verse 22. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification and the end is eternal life. Now, you know, if you don't like that phrasing enslaved to God, you have a choice. In slavery to Satan or slavery to Yahweh, who do you choose? <laughs> I'd rather be enslaved to Yahweh. Yeah. yeah. What was the second half after servants unto God or slaves? What did you read? Okay, I'll, I'll read the verse again. And But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get, the benefit you derive, is hmm. sanctification. That's, that's how it reads, right? Is sanctification. That's how it reads right here. The advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. This one has, ye have your fruit for the sanctification. Your fruit is sanctification? No, not your fruit is. You, it says, whereas now having been um, freed from sin and made servants unto God, ye have your fruit for that sanctification and the end, life, age, abiding. And it just made me ask, you have your fruit for sanctification. Is that talking about the spirit? The gift of the Spirit. It is, it is the outcome. It is the outgrowth of service to God. Having, having God as your Lord and not sin as your Lord, the outgrowth of that is sanctification. Agiasmon, which is found, founded in the word agios, which is the word for holy or saint, hence holiness or sanctification. That's the word that New King Jimmy uses. Holiness. Holiness. The word is derived from the concept of being placed on the altar. Being set apart on the altar for God is the imagery used here. The advantage you get, the benefit you get, the outcome that you receive. Carpon is the Greek word here. The fruit, literally. the, The production. The produce, <laughs> the produce you receive is, or that the produce that is generated is sanctification, and that uh, and the end telos is life eternal, life of the ages, life forever. Okay. Verse twenty-three: For the wages 
For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin earns you death. Sin, you, you receive death for it. The wages of sin is death. It's what you earn through sin. Death. That's uh, that, that, that transactional language. Transactional language is, is, is interesting. And, and here it's applied in the opposite form. Not buying salvation, but the wages of sin is the opposite. It's death. Did the people buy that at the time? Didn't they think everybody was going to die? Were they seeing the metaphor there? It goes back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. The day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil will be the day that you die. There was then the theological, philosophical interpretation that you die spiritually, that it then may take a while to die physically, but you are spiritually then dead, which is how the Jews immediately or subsequently interpreted the concept and that death follows and flows from sin is the is is the expected route. It, it's what res, it's what generates death, sin. And the way that you pay for sin is death as well. Your death or the death of of a sacrifice that substitutes for you. So there is, there is a balance here. And the shedding of blood, which contains the soul's life, is, is the, the, the ritual method by which the payment is made. Um, so, I mean, it all kind of comes into an, a balance here. Sin generates death. You pay for sin by death. Yours or a sacrifice that stands in for you. What's the, I'm sorry, I missed the first few minutes, but what's the overall context? What's he trying to, he's arguing is that sin is bad? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> Not just, uh, sin is bad, yes, that's... that's. Who's on the opposite side of this argument? It's actually the attainment of righteousness is the question. And how do, what does one attain to righteousness? And, and he is making the argument kind of uh, up around the corner with that. Back at verse 15, for instance, what then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? The, the accusation is, is that since you're no longer under the law for salvation but under grace, you can sin all you want. He says, no way, no way, Jose. Uh, do you not know that you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves? You are slaves to the one you obey. So if you're going to be sinning, then you are a slave to sin. You're, uh, whereas if you are going to be one of God's children, if you're going to live the life that God has for you, then you will be a slave to righteousness. You will be a servant of righteousness, a servant of God. So he's drawing, he's essentially saying, there is no middle ground. There is no neutral setting. You either are a slave to sin or a slave to God. 
You are either you're going to serve sin and sin and sin and sin, or you're going to serve God and live a life that is dedicated to God's will for you, and that generates God's sanctification within you. That's the, that's the basic statement that he's saying here. There is no neutral ground. You're either one or the other. It's black and white. And, and there is no neutral setting. You can't be a servant of yourself because that is being a servant of sin. You, you can't be a servant of somebody else because that's being a servant of sin. You're either a servant of God or you're a servant of sin. If you're not a servant of God, then you're automatically a servant of sin. It's the default setting, and it's the only setting other than serving God. The people, last time we talked, one of the things that we discussed was the concept of, well, I am my own master. Impossible. You are a dying body. You are a dying body that, that cannot survive on its own. It will die. It's a body of death, was one of the phrases that Paul used. And hence, you don't have any power in and of yourselves to save yourself. You are a dying body. You will therefore serve either the power of death, which is sin, and, and reap death for it, or you will serve God and reap sanctification and eternal life for that. Do you expect anything different from Paul? <laughs> no, absolutely <Okay>. not. <laughs> he's got, he's got two sides and that's it. There's no other sides. In this, case, in, this care, in this case, exactly right. There is either serving sin or serving God. Now, by well, serving God... that you have a choice, really. I mean, if, you, if you're saved, well, then there's really no decision to be you are going to serve God. You can turn and not. That's called reprobation, but but that's it's not recommended. <laughs> and, and, but but you have a choice to make, which is different than other positions on the subject, which said you don't have a choice, you just have to do the best you can. Try to approximate the law to the best you can, hope God is generous and but if the Jews didn't come into his thinking, then they're out. Um, he, he on that subject, he was not as cut and dried. <laughs> there was a middle ground. <laughs> well, no, because he said that that in point of fact, that the Jews would end up turning and recognizing Christ. They just hadn't recognized. They him just yet. hadn't recognized him yet. And to those who have not heard or received the gospel, God judges based on the light they have received. Hence, hence those who have not heard or received the gospel but are doing the best they can with the information that they have, God judges them based on that. We found that back way back in Romans chapter 2. So let me get this straight. If you have sinned and not met that target of God, not reached to God, you're missing the target. But the light was never there for you to hit the target anyway. But once it is there, and you're still hitting the same spot, then now you're going to reap death. Your reward's going to be death. However, if you have the light, and you've done, and you come very, very close to the target, but toward the end of this physical life, you make a mistake, and you've 
veer off the target. Now you have reaped, according to what I just read here, death. But the problem with the, the des description is, is the assumption is, is that it's difficult to hit the target, the target that God wants you to hit, really, which is not you'll do this, 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 and not do this, 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 and you'll do this, this way, this way, this way, this way, and not this other way, and you know, all that stuff, all that stuff. No. You'll trust Jesus. As simple as that. That's hitting the mark. That's hitting the target. That's not falling short of the target that God has for you. And then if you, if you do that simple thing, trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in God that God has made provision for you in Jesus Christ. And trust that God will transform you. Not you, you transform yourself. Not you attain righteousness. But that God's righteousness is poured into you by simply trusting in Jesus, then you find the holiness, the sanctification, the transformation of God's presence in your life does begin to change you. And then you start seeing that you are approximating more and more and more God's will for you, but not because you're doing it. It's God living in you. It's what we said, said right here in, in verse 22. But now that you have been freed from sin... We're no longer like the puppet on the strings. The strings have been cut. The problem is we keep on thinking and believing that the strings are still attached. They're not. They've been cut. Stop tying the time back on. We're not slaves to sin any longer. But we are servants in, in servitude to God. And the advantage we receive is sanctification, holiness, and the end of that is life eternal. For the wages of sin is death. What you get for sinning is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can either earn death or you can receive a free gift. What are you going to do? It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. No. I mean, because you could look at this and say, uh, for the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you, you, you're going to die. die. Just because you are now serving God doesn't mean you no longer transgress or sin. What it is your master? Exactly. What so is your master? So it's not saying you're instantly now perfected. Oh, you have no. to live a life of perfection. In fact, we find that out in the next chapter. That there's, you know what you're supposed to do, but you find yourself capable of doing it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That's what's coming next. So even those Jews that Lee was talking about, if they, if they heard this message and they still rejected it, uh -huh. then that puts them in the camp of rejecting Christ. Right. Outright versus... The concept of, okay, we're going to try to attain righteousness for ourselves. That's our objective, and we have the laws here in front of us that we have molded and shaped and interpreted in such a way that it makes it possible for us to do a pretty good job of, of approximating this list of rules and regulations. And look how good we are doing! Well, yeah, but you're missing all this other stuff. Instead of trying to do this really good stuff here, which is not bad, 
it just won't save you. Instead of doing that, and instead of focusing on the stuff you're not doing, that's the good news, by the way, focus on Christ, who did it all, who was your sacrifice, who died because you couldn't do it, who died because you do sin, so that you can then live eternally. Is there any substantial difference between this and living eternally, believing in Jesus, and the once saved, always saved? Because I'm not getting any. <laughs> if you persevere to the end, <laughs> yes, there is no difference. Okay. Uh, I kept getting again and again. Actually, you're, you're, you're pulling on the whole concept here. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end, the telos, is eternal life. But you ain't there yet. You've not reached your end yet. But if you're saved, you're going to get to the same place. You're going to get to that end if you're really once saved. The prob- but the problem is viewing salvation as an end product yeah. and not a process. The process. That's the issue. But the saved is passive. It's happening to you. Correct. You're making the choice to let it happen to you, to trust in God. Trust in You're God. responding with faith to the grace that is offered and mm-hmm. then received. And then your faith actions responding to the grace then generate sanctification within you. And like Lisa said, you can be sanctified, but you're going to make mistakes. So I get the once saved, always saved, but the Baptists that are drunk, you know, and have hangovers on That's the distinction between sanctification and perfection. Mm-hmm. I get it. And the Methodist holy. approach is to say we're moving on towards perfection in sanctification. We ain't arrived yet. Mm-hmm. Which means that it is still possible to say, that's it, I've had it. This Jesus stuff is a bunch of bunk and I know a beach in St. Lucia with my name on it. Bye-bye. Or like that pastor friend that you had, yeah. who obviously was, you know, had gone through this process and was saved, and at some point in his uh-huh. life, he determined that that's the wrong path, and he chose to go to go a completely different. So path. there's an example of somebody who once saved, always saved, didn't quite. Well, if he's really work. saved, then the process really yeah. isn't over. And that's their answer. But then, how do you explain the clear signs of sanctification that you see in people? prior to them hitting whatever it is that causes them to slide right out. Because those, those, the evidences are there. My friend could preach a really good sermon and pastor wonderful people wonderfully through difficult times until he hit his valley of darkness that was so deep he couldn't dig out. And he ended up giving in and turning and going the other way. He couldn't get out alone without help. Well, yeah, but he was rejecting the help that was offered. And you see, that's that willful decision. We have that choice. And he ended up choosing, after having chosen to take this path and to live in the body of Christ and be a minister of the gospel and proclaim the good news, he ended up changing his mind and going the other way. And the Baptist response is, well, he never was really saved, doesn't cut it for me because there's every sign that he was. All of the indications, the fruit of the Spirit were all present in his life. 
until he decided to go the other way. And it wasn't an immediate process either. It took a while. But he's still alive, isn't he? As far as I know. He's never responded. So it's not over. We don't know. We don't know. The good Calvinist answer is, oh, he'll come back. <laughs> or he wasn't ever really. Or he wasn't. He, he wasn't chosen something. one. He was not. Of course all, it is. All describing the same phenomenon of yeah. uh, yes. peaks and valleys and, and priests. Things, I completely yeah. agree. It's like a trampoline. He's got to go low. You got to go way down, make a big dent in it to go way high. <laughs> <laughs> sure that way. Sorry. Well, for the about it, he would know that people. People are people. Yes. Yeah, he wasn't a superman. Uh-uh. No. We're going to see here very shortly. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. The de charisma to theu. The gift, the charism, the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. You can't either earn it or deserve it. It is a free gift of God that comes it, it, it comes when you accept that you're no longer enslaved to sin and you, and you are instead in servitude of Christ. Verse 23, this blatant disagreement of subject and verb. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mr. Is English. this Greek? Or is this, uh, you know, I mean, wages is a plural is that, subject. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Wages is considered a single entity. There's a single, singular wage, certainly. The, well, yeah, there's a singular wage. The linguistic utilization is plural. I do is agree. There is a difference across the number, <laughs> but I don't. I think that it's considered a, a collective singular. Wages as a collective singular. I mean, that's the way. That's the way it is. It would all the way you could read it in Greek. It's how it comes out of Greek too. The wages of sin is death. Why didn't they say compensation? <laughs> yeah, that's probably payment. your book. The payment for sin is death. Yeah, that's does it say yes or Just about every translation uses wages. Yeah. Just about every translation uses wages. And it is, the, it is the literal. However, when I just said that, I just said just about every translation uses wages. And then I glanced at Moffat, who has a very wonderful way of doing this. He doesn't use wages. He, he's an English teacher just like you. He says, the wa- <laughs> he says sin's wage is death. There you go. <laughs> Sin's wage is death. Well, I have one too. Sin pays its servants. The wage is death. The wage is death. Well, good English. This commentary takes it. NIV commentary takes it back to four four uh-huh. to Romans four. Yes, where he's contrasting the uh, wage as an obligation. So it's getting pretty deep if he's really doing that. Paul's really referencing back to Romans four. Like they're trying to say in NIV. It's the same idea. It's the same idea, though, present there. But when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, Mm -hmm. but as an obligation. Right. The man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
And there you ha- there you go. That's and that is the same thinking, the same idea mm-hmm. that he then pops back in with right here. Mm-hmm. Death is what you earn for what you do, and everlasting life is what you get for what God does. Is your gift from for what Jesus did? Exactly correct. Yes. Do you not know? Chapter 7, verse 1. I am am moving ahead. I don't know about y'all. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. He's talking to the Jewish Christians now. He's been talking to the Jewish Christians. He's pointing that out again. Look, guys and gals, I'm talking to you. Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime. After you're dead, I mean, come on. <laughs> Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Hear that, Karen? You know how many Jewish women may have killed their husbands because of this? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm thinking. And do we blame them? <laughs> it would depend on uh, the church the wages. Uh, what? How the church get around that? Well, well, ignore it, of course. Accordingly. Yes, it is. He's quoting from the Old Testament law now to make a point. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God he's talking to Jewish Christians who have been priding themselves on their ability to abide by their sketchy definition of what the law is and they've been saying to Gentile Christians you got to get circumcised. You got to obey the dietary regulations. You got to wear clothing with only one thread. You got to plant your field with only one kind of seed. You got to build battlements on the top of your house. You got to do all women. You've got to make sure that when you're in your period, you've got to be away from the men. Uh, there are multiple reasons for that, but the blood purity reason is the principal one here. Uh, you've got to uh, you've got to cook kosher. All the rules and the regulations. If you're going to really be a Christian, be a Christian. That means you've got to be a Jew. And so, come on, men. Let's have at it. Let's lay it on the line. And I got the scissors. And, and that's what they were saying, essentially. And he is saying, don't you know that you died? I mean, you were married to the law, yeah. But once, for example, once a wife's husband dies, then she's free to marry somebody else well guess what that's what's happened to us now in Christ Jesus in the same way you have died to the law through the body of Christ you're in Christ you died to the law through him it means you're free to marry someone else 
You no longer have to be married to the law for salvation. You're free to marry somebody else. Is, is this, I mean, on its face, that's, that's not a very it's an analogy. persuasive argument to anyone. It is to them. It doesn't want to accept the, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, is, is, is it his argument to a Jew that somehow that this resurrection is, is the kingdom of God that started already? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. That the concept of church is the bride of Christ, but also the body of Christ. And you were married, the Jewish people are married to the law, but now they're married to Jesus. They were married to the law, now they're married to grace. Uh, Jews, you, you're free now to marry again. You don't have to be married to the law for salvation. You can be married to grace. She's a whole lot better cook. <laughs> Uh, you know, come on. I'm thinking like Peter. I'm th- he's talking to these guys that were Pharisees like he was. Uh-huh. Jesus was just about a Pharisee himself with all this knowledge. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he's telling them and basically this knowledge there is nothing. They know a whole can, lot about the law and they view the relationship, the covenant relationship. Gotta remember, the Jews viewed, because God viewed, the covenant relationship as a marriage. It was a marriage. Hence, the illustrations of the Jewish people going and worshiping other gods is often described by the prophets as adultery. Mm -hmm. And what Paul is saying is, but we've died to the law in Christ Jesus. He's telling them they're divorced. He is pronouncing them divorced from the covenant. No, no, no. No, no. no. He's saying it's it's dead. Yeah. If it's dead, then, yeah, not divorced, separate. It's been, no, dead. Not divorced, but the law's provisions for a wife to marry another husband stated that if the husband was dead, she could marry. And he's saying, the analogy here is, the old husband's gone. Dead. Died in Christ. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Well, and you also have to think about the social context at that time of what marriage meant. Mm-hmm. Yes. That the, it was possession. It was possession and the wife or the bride had to do absolutely everything that the husband told her well the Jews had to do everything that the law told them the nature of the covenant relationship was one in which you serve the law that just makes it that much stronger where I don't see those guys I'm a lot like uh, well what he's saying to them is he is saying to them utilizing terminology and conceptions that they understand Oh, if we are married to the law, and they probably were saying things like that. Oh, we can't, we can't leave the law. We're married to it. It's the law and Jesus, which is what they were doing. Yeah, polygamy in a sense. (laughs) But what they were saying was, it's the law and Jesus. That's what they were telling the Gentile Christians. Jesus is good. Add on the law, and you'll be perfect. And what Paul is saying is, nah. Well, you know, to a modern woman, this this is a horrible. These are horrible sentences to a divorced woman. 
But for that time, I probably was liberal. Put it into context. Because yeah. uh, she's not adulterous, you know, if her husband's dead. For her husband's so dead, that was liberal no. liberal at the time. Yeah. It's like, see, she's dead to the other husband, but we picked a new husband for you. <laughs> You're free now to marry Jesus. Yes. You killed you what they based their everything on, what Jesus was taught himself. You just Paul just killed all of that. You just said it. The only way it works is if it's dead in the words they understand. Precisely. I'm not surprised he didn't get stoned on this one. Well they tried. <laughs> yeah, he left, yeah. Wow. So so these Jewish Christians, you know, were saying Jesus' death and resurrection meant something, mm -hmm. but it didn't abrogate the law. Abrogate the law. And he's trying to make an analogy that's saying that that, that death took the law with him. So it to took the law as the way for becoming righteous as God wants us to be, out. It no the law is no longer the covenant relationship with the law is no longer the way by which we come into a relationship with God. It has a purpose, but it doesn't have that purpose any longer. Its mastery over you is no longer there, i.e. the master of a husband in the Jewish legal sense is, is wiped out. It's gone because you die in Christ to it. You're now free to be married to another one, in this case, grace or Christ. Does it have anything to do with when Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to complete? To complete or fulfill, fulfill it. it. Uh -huh, exactly. In fact, stems probably stems straight back to those statements. The, the law is completed in Christ. Therefore, rather than try to abide by the law to attain righteousness, abide by the one who completed it. The one who did it. The one who fulfills it. And be married to him, not to the law. And that's kind of what was going on here. And the Jews were saying, oh no, we want to keep the law too. Isn't that a covenant though? That he's screwing with the covenant. He's saying, your covenant is between Jesus and God. Now that's your covenant, not the laws. And that's right. the whole thing that they've been, he all is, their history was a covenant. He is screwing with the, with yes, the Mosaic covenant. covenant. It doesn't, Hebrews talk about that um, there were two covenants that Jesus came and he replaced the first covenant sure. that was in effect with them and it can tie back to this as well. Uh -huh. So he actually it, it it is a resurrection in fact of the Abrahamic covenant of faith which we read about earlier in earlier chapters the Abraham the father of faith. The law didn't wipe that out. It simply lay on top of it and smothered it. And now that it's dead in Christ because Christ fulfills it. You can now be married to Christ and fulfill the requirements of righteousness that way in a covenant with Jesus rather than trying to do it yourself in a covenant with the law. It talks about how much better the second covenant is. Oh, wow. Than, Hebrews does a beautiful covenant. job of that. Actually, Romans does it too. It's not quite so explicit language. This, this would have been a good place for Paul to quote Jesus. Some people say that this is this actually has uh, echoes of quoting Jesus in it uh, because it seems as though he is making a tangential reference to I've come not to destroy the law but to fulfill it. He doesn't, he doesn't use that approach 
No, it would have been no. He, he quotes Jesus about five times, literally. But he makes allusions to Jesus about 36 times throughout his writing, which is very interesting. Just Romans? Throughout Romans or no, that's throughout all of Paul's writings. He alludes to Jesus 36 times? In his, in his letters. The things that Jesus said, he either extensively paraphrases or he quotes five times. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. I don't want to miss that last bit, that we may bear fruit for God. Mine says to God. Mine says to. For God as in it's God's fruit. It says bring forth fruit unto God. In order that we might bring forth fruit unto God. That's more like you're presenting it to God. In order that we might bear forth fruit. Tothéo. Um, that's a judgment call in terms of the prepositional. To, for, through. All of those are probable. But isn't that the point of what we're to become? that we may bear fruit for God. We are, as Paul says elsewhere, we are created to bear fruit. I mean, we, we are called to do good works, but they are not our good works. It's the good works of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us working through us, which is exactly what he's saying here. We've been, uh, we're called to belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we are discharged from the law, that's interesting language, discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit discharged but now that we have been released from the law when it says delivered from the law delivered from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter oh, that's it. This says a not in obsoleteness. Obsoleteness. Obsoleteness of the letter. Oldness, literally. Not in the old way, mechanically obeying. Because it would be obsolete, wouldn't it? It would be obsolete. I want you to read that again. Not in the old way, mechanically obeying a set of rules. Yeah. That's the difference. That's the obsolete way. Mechanically obeying a set of rules. Rather than obeying a set of rules, captive to that idea, you are now freed to live by the Spirit of God. And it's essentially what we were reading at the end of chapter 6, with the advantage or the produce being sanctification.
discharged, released from the law. Saying that to a bunch of Jews is just like really hard. (laughs) They prided themselves in keeping the law. And here he's saying, it's dead. You're freed of it. You're now free to live, not mechanically the old way, but the new way. You're free to have bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich without feeling guilty. But if they felt guilty, they still shouldn't do it because it no, would have been. That's, called, that's presuming. But you shouldn't feel guilty. <laughs> so go out there and do your old sin. It's obsolete. Your old sin is obsolete. Therefore, it's righteous. You can be righteous and have your old sin. So. But it says here, in a new way, with all of your hearts and minds. So it's like like you can, the mechanical obeying the set of rules only took a certain Mm -hmm. amount of attention, energy, whatever. But you don't have to focus on that now. You can just let loose. You are to throw your entire self into this relationship with God, into this covenant relationship with your new husband, Jesus. You are to put your entire self into it, not half-heartedly trying to keep the rules and the regulations, but giving your entire self and your whole being to God. Just going through the motions. Not going through the motions, but actually living. Yeah, that's the positive part, but if you're one of those people he's talking to, it's, it would sound, I think, Pete, well, that, that you're telling them that they weren't into it. You're assuming they weren't into it all the way. Because if they were into it all the way with their God, then this would mean nothing. If they were into they're it all doing the, it anyway. If they were into it all the way, then they wouldn't have any sins that would need sacrifice for. And right. they know themselves that they Nobody. made mistakes. What then should we say? That the law is sin? Meganoita. Hell no. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's a little weird, isn't it? But think about it. Without the law to tell you what sin is, you're not going to know what sin is, are you? That's where it serves its schoolmaster role. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, this is really weird, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Once I learned what coveting was, I realized, my goodness, look at all the coveting I do. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Stop right there. Why? You know, you can find a little bit of an answer in verse 11, but I want you to think. What does he mean by saying that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. How does the commandment promise life? Just keep it. You 
Keep it. Keep it, and you're going to have. You're going to be good. You're going to be righteous, and you're going to live forever. Keep the commandments. You will be righteous, and you will live forever. You keep the covenant, and you'll be good, and you'll get the goodies. The problem with it is, you can't keep the commandment. (laughs) And if you didn't keep it, death was right. So you actually gave you death. Right. So trying to attain righteousness by keeping the commandments is certain death. Only if there were no laws to break would there be no sinning. (laughs) Well, that's one way to look at it. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what he said earlier. The problem is is that even prior to the Mosaic Covenant, there were laws that were being broken. There, there are fundamental laws that are codified by the Mosaic Covenant, but which still exist even apart from it. Otherwise, Cain killing Abel would have been an issue. And yet the ground yelled out about it, if you go back and read the story. Mm-hmm. It's still an interesting <coughs> issue. An interesting issue. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin. Seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Now what does it mean by that? He was deceived into thinking he was keeping the covenant. He was deceived into thinking that he could save himself by keeping the law. Which is exactly what you said. He needs no other help. I don't need any help. All I gotta do is do it myself. It becomes pride. The sin of pride. You were saying earlier they prided themselves on Exactly. The idea that you can save yourself by keeping the law. You can save yourself by doing good. You can save yourself by doing good works. You can save yourself by All of these things, not eating ham and cheese sandwiches, whatever it is, you can save yourself by anything that you do. Isn't that the very thing that happens to, you know, even churches today? It's the pride that enters into the people that says, if you're not like me, or you're not doing this and that, and not doing this and that, that you're not saved, or you're sinning. We do it all the time when we when we set up our own rules and regulations and say, "This is what you need to be saved." Who said? Find it in Scripture, and even if they can point you verses in Scripture, I'll point you other verses. No, it's a relationship with Christ that's the issue. So it's still that sense. Yeah, that's sin that's still entering in deceiving. Exactly. But, but he does here seem to be acknowledging that the law fulfills a function. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The function shows us, reveals to us the nature of sin, not how to get out of it, which is the mistake and how it seizes an opportunity in the commandment. The, the belief that you can get out of it by keeping the commandment is deceptive because it puts, us all, puts all the focus on us. By keeping the commandments, I didn't sin. It's a lot of I and me in that rather than God. The focus of the Jewish religion became very personally focused 
not Yahweh focused, which was a big chunk of the problem. Like 99.99% of it was the fact that it was totally me. How can I keep the law? What must I do to be saved? The rich young ruler's question to Jesus is a good example of that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus couldn't get through to him that it wasn't anything that he did that would attain eternal life for him. Was following well, him. A, wouldn't that have been a nice response for somebody in the Gospels to have recorded so it would have been a lot easier for the rest of us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just wondering. Yeah. Too easy, too easy. Oh, Lee okay. was going to say something. Yes, Lee. Yeah. First, the Jews had a covenant, and that was, that was dropped. And then they have another covenant, and that's dropped. And another covenant, and that's dropped. Uh, why, why wouldn't they be suspicious of this one? They were. Exactly. And guess yeah, what? They through some hard times. Yes. This is God's covenant that yep. they have, and they're told, no, that's no good. No, we're going to give you Are you broken? It's, it's no problem. good because we can't keep it. God didn't know broken. that at the time. God knew it, but apparently people didn't, yes. But the testament, you know, like the last will and testament is sure. written by somebody, and it doesn't take effect until that person dies. Yeah. So until that person dies, you can change your own last will and testament. You can change your testament. You can change what's written in there. And it made me think of, well, there was this first covenant. And when it was shown that they couldn't keep it, you know, God made another covenant through what Jesus did. But when Jesus died, there can be no more changes to that covenant because now the testator, the person who made the covenant, is dead, and now the, the it, it goes into effect. Right. Let's hope so, but maybe there is another. But isn't that how? <laughs> well, the Muslims say there is. He's going to come again on Earth. He's still alive. Wants to. That's good. And we're all the same timeline anyway. That would be the argument that would be made: that God is in charge, and God can make whatever changes God exactly. wants to make. But. He's faithful and consistent to his word. He's well. faithful and consistent to the word proclaimed, and that word actually is Jesus himself, hence, and, and while Jesus died, he is alive. Mm -hmm. So we have a covenant relationship with the testator who died for us, but who is nevertheless alive with us and, and within us, and to whom we are called to be married who is essentially, I mean, I like the language of the business world in this one sense. It, Jesus is our boss. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I like that attitude. I like that a little bit better. Than I like it better slave, than, than being enslaved. I, I, I like master yeah. and lord language, but to get it into boss, modern exactly. 20th century, <laughs> yeah, to get us into a more 20th century terminology, <laughs> boss, kind of kind of gets it a little bit Supervisor, there. director. Supervisor. No, supervisor sounds good. Yeah. I prefer boss. You like the boss. There's something about that language that just kind of boss. hits me. And still, that means he's in charge. He definitely is. Okay. But going back to that, we, yes. we were talking about earlier, um, Jesus came not to destroy the law. It's not like it was destroyed. It was, uh -oh. in fact, fulfilled. So God was actually consistent in that our means is now Christ. For our access to God and to achieve righteousness through Christ, Christ fulfilled the law, and so He was consistent 
in, in that because Christ did come and fulfill the law, it's not like he's violating his word. Exactly. Now, but, but in terms of our yeah. route to gain relationship back to God, to us, the law as a means to get to God is dead to us because it's been embodied and it's been completed in Christ. Now there's just Christ. We actually go back now to the method and the path to God that predated the law that which was exemplified faith. by Abraham, which is faith in God. And that is something that you know Paul talks about in the letter to the Galatians. He talks about it here in the letter to the Romans, the idea that it is faith, not keeping the law. And that's wonderful because you can go back and look at Abraham's life and all that he did wrong. Oh, God, yeah. And, and see that God doesn't care about the – he cares about faith. And faith overrides all this other the stuff. The trespasses. The trespasses. We get focused on the trespassing. Right. And we diminish the value of the faith when God sets what's the value to him. And what's of value to him is the faith, not not, the, not what you do, but it's your faith. That's correct. It is literally, that's what he's coming to also in this entire sequence, which is it's faith in Christ, but not just faith in Christ. But as we learned back several chapters ago, it's the faith of Christ. In actually going to the cross and dying for sin, completing the law, bringing the law to its fruition, and then and therefore completion, having completed it, it is then set aside as the path to God. It has the roles to play as we're reading about here and we will read next week as we move on further down into chapter 7. It has additional roles, but the principal conception is one of a schoolmaster, a guide to show us well, we can't do it ourselves. We cannot attain righteousness for ourselves. It must be given to us by the author of righteousness. It was Jesus. We cannot attain God's righteousness ourselves. It's a gift that comes for faith and by faith and through faith. Any questions? It does sound just as what you just said sounds like you get a gift, but it's certainly not free. You do nothing, nothing that you do adds to that gift, but you have to receive it. You have to fade. You have to take an action for that Faithing gift. Fading doesn't add to the gift. It simply no. connects it to no, you. No, it completes it maybe. Or, yeah. yeah, but still you've got to do something. Yeah, you've got to give up lordship to yourself. Yeah. You've got, to get, you've got to do something. It's not a free gift. Uh, it's given freely, but it's not a free the gift. There's a wage there. The content of the gift, you have done nothing to add to it by receiving it. You have simply received it. If Bill Gates were to write me a check for a million dollars, I could take that check and put it in a frame and put it on my wall and say, see, Bill Gates gave me a million dollars, but could I spend it? No, not until I deposit it. Now, my depositing it in my checking account does not add anything to that million dollars. It simply connects it into my account that I can now spend. I hope Bill Gates listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. 
but that's the, the point is it doesn't by depositing it it doesn't add anything to it it simply connects it to me that I can now use it likewise faithing does not add anything to grace or anything to righteousness it simply connects it to me that I can now spend it use it be transformed by it and you may think you can spend it and use it to further your own desires but when you find out that you now have it it wants to be spent in a different way and it draws you to spend it in a different way and it changes your desires it's the nature of grace in that grace in and of of itself is manifested by the Holy Spirit by God's actual presence within us which transforms us which is the essence of sanctification and perfection hence when we act in faith we find that God is actually directing our action and if we try to do it ourselves we look back and we see (laughs) what a mistake we'd make Mm -hmm. but if we do what God says and if we follow the direction that God has for us in faithing then we'll we'll do what God wants us to do unfortunately what we want to do we find ourselves not doing as we find out later on in this chapter and the answer to that is of course Jesus Christ and that's always Paul's answer by the way faith in faith of faith in and towards Jesus but the faithing is not a work the faithing is that which connects us to Jesus which is the source of it all the faithing is doesn't add anything to the gift it, it simply like connects us to it. it is a means of grace mm-hmm. all the means of grace are faithing actions every one of them prayer fellowship service communion, communion baptism remembrance of baptism singing of hymns worship and beyond the list, foot washing, beyond those lists, anything that is an act of faith is a means of grace. They are one in the same thing. They, they are that which connects you to the cross, connects you to the effects of Christ, connects you to your new master, being here learning. Yeah, study of scripture. It's a means of grace. It's an act of faith. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal senior pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.